however you say hello. Thank you. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. All right. Well, we are a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching, Bible-reaching church. And we get into the Word, hopefully, until the Word gets into us. We have, uh, this morning, uh, addressed the subject of procrastination. We didn't put it off, did we? We went right to it. Amen. And a number of folks who realized they were spiritual procrastinators made life-changing decisions today and didn't put it off. And so we took care of those frogs, right? Amen. Got those frogs put away. Amen. That, of course, from Exodus chapter number 8. Go back and view it if you'd like to. This song that we have just sung, No Not One, is a great song. In its day, it was translated into three dozen other languages, which was remarkable. The author, the writer, composer, uh, Johnson Oatman Jr., uh, grew up in a Christian home. He would sit on uh, the couch next to his dad who would sing hymns. And very early, he uh, was inculcated with, uh, with hym- hymns and hymnology and so forth. And uh, you generally you grow up with things, don't you? you? You develop certain things along the way. I came from a singing home. And um, I came from a musical home. My mother, who is still with us, by the way, thank you for your prayers, uh, attempted to teach all three of her children, each at a different time in their life, of course, but to teach us to play the piano. And all three of us ended up playing some kind of piano, but uh, we were not successful on the receiving end of what she was trying to deliver. And uh, we all actually ended up crying at the same time because we didn't get it the same way. But uh, my mom's a great piano player and still is uh, a wonderful musician. My dad was a singer, song leader, probably the best song leader you ever. I mean, just, you know, just a little guy and he'd just get the everybody going. And So I come from a musical family. I grew up with that. So I understand Johnson Oatman Jr. was brought up with music. He was born in the middle of the 19th century, the 1800s, and lived until 1922. And during that time, he wrote a number of, of remarkable songs. Some of the songs he wrote, in addition to No Not One, he wrote, uh, he included me, Higher Ground, Count Your Blessings, and uh, praise the Lord for what he did write. Uh, he wrote this as a dedication, Let others sing of rights or wrongs, sing anything that pleases. But while they're singing other songs, I'll sing a song for Jesus. I like that. That's good. So he dedicated his ability, his talent, to writing music that would exalt the Savior. And when he wrote No Not One, he wrote about who Jesus is as well as what Jesus does. And that's the way we think about God, isn't it? We think about who God is, we learn His attributes, and everybody should. That's one of the first things we should desire as a born-again person, is to desire uh, to know this person, this divine person who has saved us. What does the Bible have to say about His nature, about His characteristics or attributes? But it also speaks, the song speaks of, of what Jesus does. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus, speaking of His humility. None else could heal all our soul's diseases. No friend like Him is so high and holy. Uh, there's not an hour that is not near us. Did ever saint find this friend, capital friend, forsake Him? No, not one. Or sinner find that He would not take Him? Uh, what a wonderful, wonderful uh, song about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus knows all about our struggles. That is so 21st century. He knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. So it comes as no surprise to me. I went back into my file and found a southern gospel song that we used to sing all the time. They tried my Lord. They tried my Lord and Master with no one to, with no one to defend within the halls within the halls of Pilate he stood without he stood without a friend then it goes on I'll be a friend to Jesus my life for him 
I'll spend, I'll be a friend to Jesus until my years shall end. So we've sung tonight, there's not a friend, you know, gospel song, but in the hymn category, right? And then we've just heard me do a version of I'll be a friend to Jesus. Guess who wrote both of them? You're right, Johnson Oatman Jr., so he wrote hymns, and he wrote gospel songs, but he wrote on similar subjects in this case, on there's no friend like the lowly Jesus, and I'll be a friend to Jesus. Amen. I wanted you to think about this tonight, because of where we find the Lord after he has been training the twelve for three, three and a half years. And he's been with them night and day. And they've been around him. They've been, you know, just absorbing everything that they can, getting it all by precept and, and uh, by example, you know, taking it all in by osmosis if they can. Have you ever in your life spent time with somebody, maybe a parent or a brother or sister or... Um, maybe somebody that you are close to, and you just kind of took in the influence. And so they've been around Jesus all this time. And Jesus Christ says, uh, we need to have a meeting. And so on the occasion of the Lord's Supper, He washes their feet, He teaches them about humility, and then He begins to instruct them about the one, another comforter, and the word another, there are two words that would be translated another in English, and he chose the word that means another of the exact, the identical kind. I'll, I'm going to send another comforter. And he was speaking of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who would come in a new relationship, not just coming upon them, but in dwelling within them and filling the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God, filling them, leading them, guiding them. And so he's training them about that and about their treatment of one another. He taught them about love and how, how that the world would identify us by agape love being demonstrated genuinely, sincerely. And uh, how, how to bear fruit the 15th chapter of John, he talks about how to bear fruit. And it's God's plan that we bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit, and that our fruit should remain. And we'll be talking about that in the future. So what is he doing? The Lord Jesus Christ, who has spent three, three and a half years training these disciples, they've been influenced by him all this time. They've been around him. There, there should be... There should be more answers than questions, but they've got more questions than answers. They don't feel prepared. I have to confess, in some areas of my life, I feel less prepared, even after I've prepared, than before. And maybe you felt that way in school in certain subjects. Maybe you studied and you didn't feel ready for the final exam. Well, the final exam is about to come for them in their earthly experience. He has taught them about leadership, about guidance, about direction, about love, about fruit-bearing, about living out Christ, about living out what they have been taught all this time. We come to the 26th chapter of Matthew. Please turn there with me. The 26th chapter of Matthew. And having prayed for his own, he comes to the garden and he says uh, that he is going to, to pray. He wants them to pray. He tries to lead them as an example. They go to sleep. They're snoozing. He tells them finally to sleep on. And then we come to this verse. I'm in Matthew 26, and I'm at verse 56. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples, look at this, all the disciples forsook him and fled. 
say, well, it's excusable. It's understandable. They, they were, it was, it was pre-Pentecostal. They, they hadn't been completely endued with power yet. You say it's perfectly understandable. Uh, they were caught off guard. They weren't prepped. He'd been prepping them for three and a half years. He'd been prepping them for several hours. And instead of praying, they slept. And then came the temple guard with the elders and with Judas, the betrayer, who betrayed him, Jesus Christ, with a kiss. And then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will fill me now and help me to bring through our understanding, as you've guided us by the Spirit, some truths and principles to the surface out of this rich Scripture. We know that Jesus Christ is the perfect friend. Lord, we all fall far short of what we ought to be. But by your grace, may we be a friend to Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. They tried my Lord. The world may turn against him. I'll love him to the end. Isn't that what Peter said? That's what Johnson Oatman Jr. is saying in his song, I'll be a friend to Jesus. I'll do what he may bid me. I'll go where he may send. I'll try each flying moment to prove that I'm his friend. To all who need a Savior, my friend, I recommend, and so on. All these words are sincere, I'm sure. Uh, from what I read of the, just the hymnology of Johnson Oatman Jr., he meant it. And the person, uh, Peter included, who say, I'll never forsake you. We mean it. But in the hour of trial, in the hour of trial, if, if we are not depending upon the Lord, we are going to fail. If our, if our total... Uh, uh, leaning is not on the Lord. We're going to stumble. We're going to falter. We're going to fail. The context of our scripture is one of the saddest and most telling in all of scripture. Now I want to talk about friendship and what friendship means in being a friend to Jesus. Um, if you haven't got any friends... Let me tell you, there's some reasons why we don't have friends. People have come to me, some have come for counseling on occasion, and when we sit down, it's, it's not what you think it is. They just say, you know, I just haven't got any friends. I haven't got any friends. And I teach them what I was taught when I was young. To have a friend, you've got to be a friend. To have a friend, you've got to be a friend. But that doesn't tell the whole story. That doesn't tell you how to be a friend. Many times, friendship is based on different things. It's based on a likeness. And so there will be similarities. And so these similar traits will attract. And, and so you're a friend with somebody who has similar interests. That doesn't mean that your personality will click. It doesn't mean that you'll be best friends until the end. But sometimes friendship is based on similarities or a likeness. Sometimes friendship is based on necessity. You're thrown together. Somebody helps out. You discover one another, uh, and lo and behold, uh, you are friends. I had a friend when I was in elementary school. Uh, we lived in California, and through most of my grades, in most of my classes, was a friend of mine. His name was Stan. Stan was a friend of mine, and uh, he stuck up for me. I stuck up for him. Doesn't mean that it was perfect friendship, but it was, it was at least basic and I remember him through all these years. I don't know if he remembers me. We've not connected in a lot of years. Then in 6th through 12th grade, when my dad took a church in Minnesota, we moved back into the cold climate. And right across the park, Lorraine Park in South St. Paul, Minnesota, lived Buzz Evans. And Buzz became my friend. He was in my 6th grade class at Roosevelt Elementary School. And... Uh, it was at Roosevelt Elementary School that we had what was known then as release time class. How many of you know what that is? Where uh, the state allows, the educational system allows kids one hour a week of religious instruction. Uh, and every municipality is different, but we used to get 
uh, uh, on a bus and go to our church, my dad's church. And my mom taught the release time class. And she taught us all the names of all the kings of Israel and of Judah and all the different things, and we still remember that. And years later, after I was in the ministry, I connected with Buzz again. And I said, Buzz, you know, I'm concerned. I want you to know that I pray for you. And I want to know for sure, you know, that you know that if you died, you'd go to heaven. I said, are you, are you 100% sure if you died that you'd go to heaven? He says, yes, I am. I said, well, how do you know that? He says, you remember that release time class? I said, yeah. He says, you remember your mom? She would teach. And it didn't matter if she was teaching on the kings of Israel and Judah or if she was teaching the fruit of the Spirit or she was teaching. And he went down the list. She always had us bow our heads and close our eyes. And if we didn't know for sure that we were saved, she helped us through the sinner's prayer. And he said, and that's when I prayed and asked Jesus Christ in my heart. And he saved me. And all these years later, he knew that he was saved. Now, he would not have gotten that in his Presbyterian church. He would not have gotten that from his uh, upbringing because they didn't emphasize personal salvation. They were interested in saving society. They were interested in the social gospel. And so he knew that. Buzz was my dear friend all the way through high school. I went off to Bible college and I met Jan Michelson. Jan Michelson had come from Iowa and he was in my freshman and my sophomore school years on into my junior year. And uh, he went on and became uh, a couple of things. He went to radio school, Brown Institute in St. Paul or Minneapolis, and he, he got his license to clear his voice on the air, you know, and he became a, became a kind of a DJ talk radio guy and eventually became the main drive time talk show host on the big station in Des Moines, Iowa, a 50,000 watt flamethrower. And they knew him through his entire career as Rush Light because he did not make it a secret that he had a Christian worldview. And he became the chief spokesman in the Des Moines area for pro-life and for uh, conservative uh, Americanism. Uh, and uh, he is still my dear friend. They've now retired. And he may be watching. I don't know. But they've retired. And he's out there in the greater Las Vegas area where the climate is better than Iowa. I will say that. All right. Then uh, in ministry, I've had some friends. I've got to say, though, my number one friend is Jesus. Uh, my best friend outside of Jesus is my wife. And uh, my family, my church, I thank God for you. My colleagues in the ministry, preachers I've known, you know that uh, I was very close with my mentors and my teachers Dr. Wally Beebe was a friend, and Dr. Hancock was a friend. and So we've had many friends, uh, preachers, evangelists, over the years, missionaries, and I thank God for these friends. Now, I've learned something from each, and I believe that is one of the healthy takeaways of friendship, that you learn something from the personality, the friendship, the relationship that you have with friends. Let me also say this. If in your lifetime you have that many, one hand, one, two, three, four, five, you have five good, close friends, you are rich. Most people, they think back, you know, I got one, two, three, maybe. If you have five good friends in your lifetime, then you're rich. And we learn from our friends about some things that um, will help us with respect to this business of being a friend to Jesus. The Bible prophesied that Jesus would be despised and rejected. That Jesus, you know, we read in the New Testament, He came into His own, His own received Him not. Even His own family didn't believe on Him until after the resurrection. We know that His disciples forsook Him and fled. Same word as when they initially forsook their nets. I mean, they left their fishing business behind. So they were leaving Jesus behind when they were making tracks to save their own hide. And Jesus knew this. I read how he knew he would be betrayed in John chapter 6, in John chapter 12, in John chapter 13. He refers again and again to the one who would betray him. He knew that he would be betrayed. He knew that he would be forsaken. And Jesus 
had committed to do the Father's will, even though Judas committed to his infamous betrayal of the very Son of God for silver, for mere silver, the price of a slave. Yet Jesus had committed to do the Father's will no matter what. And to, to go and to die for the sins of mankind, he was there in Gethsemane. He wasn't struggling with the dying on the cross business. He wasn't struggling with the giving of himself according to the Father's will. The struggle was a struggle because Satan was giving him everything. He was giving him what for in the garden. And it may have occurred to him that he was physically imperiled in the garden. He was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And so some physicians who have read this have indicated this is a condition where there, there is a hemorrhage or near hemorrhage about to occur. And so Jesus is saying, Lord, you want me to die here? If that's your will, I'll die here. But I believe the plan is the cross. And so he wasn't shrinking from the cross. But he was going through all that stress. You think that you have or that I have a bad day. Nothing compared to this. Nothing compared to this. And then he's forsaken and left to the chief priests and the elders and the temple guard. And the temple guard were cutthroats. And there they are on one side, the disciples are on the other. And they are all observers drawn into this scene. It's like everything's frozen. You have Judas betraying Jesus Christ. And Jesus then abandoned in his hour of need and absolutely alone. Some had boasted they would never forsake him, like Peter, but they failed, they faltered, and they followed afar off. That's it. They were in that moment tested, and they came out on the short end when we're measuring the level of courage and commitment. We have in this account over in John's Gospel of that garden experience when Jesus identifies himself and says I am he he's using a construction in which he is declaring to be Jehovah God in a body and the people fell back and your crazy movements today think that's being slain in the spirit because they fell back that's their whole verse basis for being slain in the spirit but there is nothing else in scripture that would support that so he is even in his betrayal he is declaring and demonstrating uh, His great power, His presence. And we are there spiritually. And whose crowd, which crowd are we identifying with? Are we the fearful that are running, fleeing for our lives? Or are we among those that are about to take Him? And can we really say that I'll be a friend to Jesus? Now what does a friend do? And what can we do? to demonstrate our loyal friendship to Jesus Christ, our true friendship to Jesus Christ. Put this down. Number one, I believe it starts with following the same path. That's how we end up meeting people initially. I'll never forget a message I heard by Art Wilson. Dr. Art Wilson was a, a leader among independent Baptists in middle America back in the 1940s. He was an evangelist and a pastor in Wichita. Um, he... Um, he preached all over the country, preached prophetic messages. He would advertise, who is the Antichrist? And depending upon who was the likely candidate on the scene, it would be Mussolini or whoever it would be. I, I remember seeing the signs, the big tents that he would put up. But Art Wilson was a, a very influential independent Baptist leader. I remember him preaching about this subject. And he said, there is a difference between union and unity. When the world, whether it's a religious gathering or it's, you know, a labor union, whatever it is, they want to be a union. They want to experience union. It is organic connection. They want to get a slate of officers. They want to have a treasury. They want to state their purpose. They want to have paperwork. They want to have union. He said, but that's not what we have as believers. What we have as believers is unity. It is spiritual it is unity of the Spirit. And he characterized the difference this way. He said, union 
is like taking two alley cats. They're just as mean as can be and tying their tails together. Don't try this at home. And throwing them over a clothesline in some alley. They'll have union, but they'll scratch each other to death. Right? They have union. They're organically connected, but they don't have unity. Now, unity is different. Unity of the spirit. We're going the same direction. And he said, it's like this. It's like there's a, this great mountain, and there are two fellas, one on either side of the mountain, and they're climbing up the mountain, and they're struggling, and they're working at it, and they're just doing the best they can, and they get up to the very summit of the mountain, and one guy pulls himself up over the top, and staring back at him is another face. They've been coming up the same mountain all this time, all these years, and they have unity of purpose. They're, they're doing the same thing. And Art Wilson said, that's what we have when it comes to our gathering together. We have not union, but the unity of the Spirit. You don't have to elect a slate of officers and have treasurers and have organizational papers and be the mm -hmm, fill it in fellowship or mm -hmm, association or mm -hmm, conference or mm -hmm, convention. I'm not here to slam those tonight. I'm, I'm more independent than some. But what I believe is this. What we have spiritually is more important than what you write down on paper in those situations. What you have here is far more important. And what you have is that you're following the same path. The classic separation passage, one of the classic passages from the Old Testament is Amos 3.3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And that, that's been quoted since the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the 19, early 1900s, 1920s. Can two walk together except they be agreed? It took some of them 20, 30 years to figure out that you can't. It's a rhetorical question. You can only, when you're yoked up together, you don't put an oxen on one side of the yoke and a chicken on the other. The chicken will be flapping its wings. It does, it's not agreed. Doesn't have the same dimensions, doesn't have anything in common. Chicken and an oxen has nothing in common. And the same thing is true with God's people. We've got to be on the same path, on the same level, going the same direction with spiritual unity, not union, but unity in order for us, and that's the first step in having true friendship. You've got to be on the same path. Now, something interesting in 1 John. Turn with me, please. 1 John. Hope to give clarity. Now, this is not smoke and mirrors tonight. I want it to be clear. All right, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This, then, is the message which we have heard from Him and declare unto you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. I've preached on light versus darkness, spiritual light, spiritual darkness before. 1 John, written by the aged a beloved Apostle John, and it is written to people who are saved, they have been saved, and there are tests or evidences of salvation that are given to us internally within the book. Everybody understand that? It's not about trying to get saved. It's about we are saved, and this evidences or shows that we are saved. All right, so here's something that shows that we're on the same path. All right, light versus darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. As Christians, and the truth is not in us. If we confess or name as God names them our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all sin. Unrighteousness. This is foundational. We are now saved by receiving Christ as Savior. He has saved us, uh, and uh, we're on our way to heaven. But how we're walking is so important, it's so vital. And if we are going to be a friend with someone else, we need to be following the same path. And how do we know we're on the same path? We're walking in the light. And the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all sin. May I say this, if we're going to be a friend to Jesus, we need to be on that same path that Jesus trod, that same place where Jesus walks. We have to be 
with Jesus. We have to be walking with the Lord. Say, how do you do that? Through the Word, through submission, through obedience. Not once can we say no, Lord, and still be walking with Him. We have to say yes every step. We have to say yes, Lord. So as He steps, we step. As He goes, we go. How can we be a friend to Jesus? We're, we're in step by step with Him. We're following the same path. And the word here has been mentioned, so let me give you the second way in which we demonstrate friendship. We follow the same path. We have fellowship one with another. Now the word fellowship, koinonia, means we, we share in common something. And in Revelation 3.20, we have frequently used this scripture, perhaps not in its best way, but when we lead people to Christ, we say, Jesus is standing at your heart's door. We've done that, right? Standing at your heart's door right now. He's convicting you. He's knocking at your heart's door. You know, that thump to thump, that's the Lord, that's the Holy Spirit. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. I don't, I don't want to destroy your soul winning zeal tonight. But I do want to talk about the context of this verse. This verse comes at the end of chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are the letters that the Lord Jesus penned through John to the churches. And the churches, each one of them had strengths and or weaknesses, as we find them, the seven churches that are there that form that circle on the map and uh, they, they have their lampstands, their lights that are burning, and Jesus, Jesus Christ is in the midst of the lampstands. So this is all about the churches and what is right about them, what's wrong about them, and what needs to get fixed if they're going to keep their lamp burning, if they're going to keep their light shining. That's what this context is about. And based on that, Jesus is then saying, this is what I desire. I desire, and it's, this, is, this is His divine love. He desires to come in and sup with us. He's trying to gain entrance in the sense not of He's trying to win this soul, but He's trying to be part of what we're doing here at church. He wants to be in the midst of what we're doing at our local church. He wants to be in the midst of what you do at your local church. He wants to be in the midst of you that are out there from other churches. He wants to be in the middle of that. Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about this. I've often said, if John Wesley were to rise from the dead and come back for a little while and walk around and go into some of the churches that bear uh, the, the, the historic marks of, of his belief system and what his practice was, he wouldn't... He would not recognize his churches. He would not feel welcome in his churches. And he probably would not be welcomed in his churches. I think you could probably say that about most of the, the human reformers uh, that were instrumental in some development of churches through the ages. If they were to rise from the dead and go back to the to what is now the, the, the 21st century version of what they were instrumental in the development of, they probably would not recognize them. They probably would not feel welcome and they probably would not be welcomed because the development into the 21st century has not been for the better. It has been in the form of declension. Jesus Christ wants to be in the midst of our local churches. And we who are Bible-believing, independent, fundamental Baptists, we should be leading this charge in wanting to be what Jesus would have if Jesus were here, what He would say, what He would do, how He would lead, how this church would be, would be the way we would want it to be also. This is called fellowship, koinonia. And you thought fellowship was going out after the service and having a piece of pie and a cup of coffee. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I think that actually helps somehow or other. We'll get to that. That'll be some other time. All right. So fellowship. Fellowship. Think about that. True friends 
follow the same path. True friends have fellowship. They have fellowship. There isn't something between my soul and the Savior. Hmm? All known sin confessed. Things that are out of whack are corrected. Do you know that preaching on those frogs this morning and, and not procrastinated resulted in some folks saying, I'm not going to put it off. I'm going to get it taken care of. And I don't want to bring the frogs, you know, I don't want a bunch of croaking in the service tonight, but you know what I'm saying? Whatever is between us and the Lord and keeping us from being a friend to Jesus, I would say to those churches where John Wesley's heritage is, where the other reformers' heritage is, if they, along with independent Baptists, would seek to please the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to return to the old paths, why, this would be a transformation that would be so amazing, it would shake the very foundations of, of this society in which we find ourselves. You talk about the beginnings, uh, the rumblings of revival. There would be the stirrings or the rumblings, the beginnings of revival, if we'd get back to the old paths. Number three, a friend not only follows the same path and fellowships with, but in that fellowshipping with, feasts with. And you say, how's that different from fellowshipping with? Well, to feast with, to enjoy the good things, the Bible says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, how, how do you do that? That's not cannibalism. That's not the Eucharist. How do you taste and see that the Lord is good? In the Word of God, as we're walking and talking with the Lord, as we're obedient, as we're taking step by step, saying yes to Him, and as we're one with Him, there's that unity, and we're on the same path, having fellowship, feasting with Him, means enjoying the same things that He enjoys. Have you ever thought about this? God has tastes in certain things. There's certain conversation that God enjoys and there's conversation that He would not enjoy. Talk. There is music that God would enjoy and music that He would not enjoy. I could go down the list and the test of that is not your particular preference or mine or our particular style, but it has to do with that which exalts, speaks the truth, and exalts God's plan, His program, His purposes. So our speech should fulfill that. My, how much idle talk is there? Every idle word we're going to give account for. How much, how much of our music doesn't exalt the Lord and His purposes and lift Him up? But it should. And in every category of our life, there should be that feast. I've seen people, for example, who just love opera. I'm not averse to it. I, I don't hate opera. I acknowledge opera. In my musical training, I recognize opera. I recognize classical music. And, and so I, I'm thinking, okay, that's a 5-7 chord. That's a minor 6 chord leading to a dissonant passing tone. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, I'm, I'm tearing it apart, note by note, chord by chord. But some other person who doesn't know a 5-7 from a minor 6 is sitting there, and their eyes are closed, and they're just soaking it in. It does something for them. It, it lifts their spirit, their soul. It lifts them to a higher mental plane. It, it improves them. It makes them better. It does something good and positive for them. Well, God has tastes in music. God has tastes in our talk. God has tastes in every category of our life. And if we're going to be a friend to Jesus, we need to be following the same path saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. We need to be fellowshipping with Him on the same level, and we need to be feasting with Him. That is, we need to determine to enjoy what He enjoys. Does Jesus enjoy this conversation? Does Jesus enjoy this music? Would Jesus enjoy, and you've got some book you're reading or something you're looking at or something you're, would Jesus enjoy it? If Jesus wouldn't enjoy it, then put it aside. Turn it off. 
Switch channels. I'll be a friend to Jesus by following the same path, by fellowshipping, walking in that light, by feasting with Him. And here we go, number four, by being faithful to Him. Faithful to Him. Years ago, we copied this down. I remember getting it 1977. I received something in the mail from Roger Vogelin up in Fairhaven in uh, Indiana. And it's loyalty. If you work for a man in heaven's name, work for him, speak well of him, and stand by the institution he represents. Remember, an ounce of loyalty is worth a pound of cleverness. If you must growl, condemn, and eternally find fault, resign your position, and when you are on the outside, gripe to your heart's content. But as long as you are a part of an institution, do not condemn it. If you do the first high, if you do, the first high wind that comes along will blow you away, and probably you will never know why. There are numerous people, numberless people, who have washed out because they did not begin from the very first moment to be loyal. I'm not talking about blind loyalty or being loyal to that which is inherently wrong, evil, immoral. But I'm talking about when you're part of an effort and the broad picture is that this is a good positive thing. This is where God wants you to be. This is what God wants you to do. And you have determined that and you have that conviction in your heart and you're not questioning that part of it. You know that you are where God wants you to be. Then be loyal. And all of us are, as Christians, in Christ. So to whom should we be loyal? To Jesus Christ. First and foremost, when those apostles were dragged in and were told that they ought not to speak in this man's name, they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. They were talking about not being intimidated by those who said, you refrain from speaking in this man's name by that authority or else. And they didn't want to know what the or else was, but they said whether or not we're going to obey God rather than men. The priorities of our life begin by being loyal to God, to Jesus Christ, to the Word, to His purpose. I hate it every time I hear somebody misquote, intentionally misquote the Bible. Now, I know sometimes when we're reading, we skip a, you know, a word, and we don't mean to. Try not to. But when somebody intentionally takes God's book and is so audacious, so full of himself or herself as to change the words that God gave us, that hurts me, and I have to say I despise it. I hate it. So if I happen to have quote-unquote Christian radio on, and they say, and now the good news, the moment for the good news, and they're reading from some perversion of Scripture, I turn it off. We hate it. We don't like it. You say, but isn't there some kernel of truth in there? There may well be. But what they're doing grieves the Spirit. And I can't handle it. And the reason is, I was raised in a, an atmosphere of being loyal to this book. I'm talking about this one that I hold in my hand. So much so that I have a box, a storage box of old Bibles that are just as beat up as this that I have not figured out what to do with other than to just keep them. I'm loyal because I was trained to be. I was not given an option. When our boys were growing up, you taught them not to you know, put their foot on the Bible or put anything else on top of the Bible, but to exalt the, the physical word that contains the words of God. My father, I've told you this story. My father was approached by a group of laymen when he had bleeding ulcers. And they came into his bedroom. I remember because my room was down the hall and around the, the bathroom. And I heard the men. A group of men came to visit my dad because he took a stand for the King James Bible against the Revised Standard Version back in the late 1950s. And he took such a stand that they had come 
to ask him to back off, back away, or resign. And my dad, with bleeding ulcers, sat up in his bed and said, Man, there is nothing to discuss. Now, they were also driven by two brothers who pastored churches down the peninsula. This was in California. And one of the two eventually became the pastor of that church after my dad left. But my dad took a stand. And I did not know the full extent of it until years later when a lady who had been a nurse to us, taking care of us and, and being a sitter and a nursery worker in our churches, when I was just a little guy, June Schwabenland came back to the town. What are the chances? The town where I was pastoring in California and, and we had a chance to be a help to her. And, and I sat in a restaurant with June Schwabenland, who was 80 years old at that time, and she said, I don't know if you know the story, but the so-and-so brothers set it up so that the deacons, that the men of the church came to see your dad when he had that bleeding ulcer. I said, I remember that. I was just a little kid. And do you remember what the reason was? I said, yeah, it had to do with the Bible. My dad sat up in bed and said he would be loyal to this book, that they were wasting their time and their breath, and they might as well leave. Now, whoever, whether it's some other individuals, the world, the flesh, or the devil himself, we need to be loyal to the book. We need to be loyal to Jesus Christ. We need to be loyal to the truth. I'll be a friend to Jesus. On a couple of occasions, I've had the privilege of being on working boards of Christian organizations, fellowships, and so forth. In every case, when I'm elected to serve or asked to serve, I go privately to the leader. And, and I get off alone with them somewhere. We got our cup of coffee. And I say, you know, I got your back. I got your back. As long as you're true to this book and to my Savior, to my Jesus, I got your back. And I will not allow anybody to undercut your leadership as long as you're true to this book and to Jesus. And I have been that kind of a board member. Now, I don't personally like being on anybody's board. I don't like doing that stuff. But I was willing to do that and watch their back as long as they were true to the book and to the Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what I mean by loyalty. This is what I mean. And in every Christian effort, we need to be Loyal. We need to be true. We need to hang in there. Say, but what if you get rubbed the wrong way? Go home and pray about it. Go home and pray about it. Well, can't you do something? Go home and pray about it. Now, if the preacher stands up and says something contrary to the Word of God, stand up and say, Preacher, I think you misquoted that. I think you got that wrong. But as long as he's true to the book and to Jesus, you know, he hasn't got any moral problems in his life or, or isn't stealing the offering, then be loyal. Be faithful. And after I'm dead and gone, be loyal and faithful to the next one, as long as he's true to this book and to Jesus. Isn't immoral, isn't stealing from the offering? Be loyal. Be loyal. And Jesus Christ deserves our loyalty. In spite of fear, we might be somewhat tentative, trepidatious. We may... We may from time to time, show our flaws and our faults. I have way too much of the Apostle Peter in me. I don't mean to use your name in vain. But I have too much of the Apostle Peter in me. I want to cut off somebody's ear too often. In spite of our faults, our flaws, our failures, we need to be true to the Lord Jesus. We have a song that we sing, I'll be true, precious Jesus, I'll be true. There's a race to be run. And we need to finish that race. We need to vow, make a godly promise tonight that we're going to follow the same path as Jesus. We're going to fellowship with Him. We're going to feast and enjoy the same things He enjoys. We're going to cultivate those kinds of tastes. We're going to be faithful to Him in difficulty, in impossible situations, in hard times. We're going to be faithful. If there's anything I can do, anything I can do, I know I can hang in there by the grace of God. can absolutely hang in there. Not quit. 
not give up. I'll be a friend to Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And how many of you tonight would say, Preacher, something in the Word, something in the message spoke to my heart tonight. Slip your hands up high. All right, God bless you. In just a moment, we'll extend the invitation. We're offline now, so I'm going to go ahead and give you the invitation. If you've never received Christ as Savior, the Bible says all of us have sinned. We've all done wrong. We've all violated God's law. We've all come short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin, the payment is death. We deserve to die forever in the lake of fire. But because Jesus Christ experienced that punishment in our place, we can call upon Him as the Spirit of God draws us. We can ask Him into our heart and life. And He'll take away our sins and He'll make us brand new creatures from the inside out. Right now with heads bowed and eyes closed, would you pray from your heart, Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I deserve to pay for my sins. I believe Jesus died to save me. And right now, I receive the Lord Jesus Christ into my heart as my personal Savior. Please take away my sins and take me to heaven when I die. 